everyone. Uh, welcome to today's uh, Mastering Retention Roundtable. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, game economies today. Um, I'm your host, uh, Tom Hammond, one of the founders of UserWise. Um, I have some of my favorite people on today and like the smartest game economists. So I'm, I'm just so excited for today's conversations, but um, maybe we can go around, uh, start with Javier. You know, I'd, I'd love for you to introduce yourself a little bit uh, and tell us what you're currently up to. Yeah. Um, so I'm Javier Barnes. You can check out my uh, blog, which is not the name is not easy. It's uh, jv-dev.net, or you can check it, uh, you know, in Gamma Sutra and Medium and everywhere else. Uh, I'm a senior product manager at Tilting Point, uh, and I have uh, about 10 years of experience in uh, mobile free-to-play. I've been a game economy director at Game of Montreal. I've been game lead. Uh, at at Social Point, and I've been basically working in multiple uh, free-to-play projects and learning a lot about <laughs> free-to-play economy and game economy. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, Adrian, would you like to go next and and maybe you know let us know how you got into gaming and you know what game are you currently playing now? Yeah, so yeah, I I started pretty young. I. I actually was a first I studied math and stuff, but you know what? I wanted to make games. So my love for math and uh, an algorithm made me a, a a weird game designer that just didn't really care about narrative and <laughs> just was caring more about the numbers and the systems. Uh, I thought it was the best way to make games. So yeah, initially I'm a game designer specialized in economy, which is sort of, you know, so I was working, I worked quite a lot in, in Paris and startup did most of the game economy there. And then I was sort of hired by Ubisoft to be a game economy designer. So that's, you know, this, my, my job was basically working with numbers all day and just figuring out what's the best meta and the best way to monetize the games. So I did this quite a lot. And then I moved to, to do GNC, to GSN games as a sort of live ops manager and monetization manager. So that's the other, you know, side of the fence, which is, you know, how do we make money live? So that's, that's, you know, <laughs> thinking about economy, it's also very interesting. So yeah. And why, what then right now I'm just doing new project and having fun and, uh, what game am I playing? I'm a huge wow fan. So, you know, Kathleen, we've been talking about this, you know, that's <laughs> has been my addiction, uh, since, you know, I actually just played in Vanilla. So I, I may, I had a break in between. So yeah, wow was great. And then on mobile, I am a huge RPG fan. So I've been playing actually summon as well for more than five years. Uh, which is quite a long time now that I know it. So yeah, that's me. Yeah, we're we're still waiting for uh, a, a great article on on I Gotcha know. from Summoners War. I, I remember. I know talking talking yeah. to you about that, and I was like, I need to play in, that game just to learn about Gotcha. <laughs> you know that in my in my mind, this article just starting to merge into a like what what playing five years of Summoners War taught me as a game maker. I think there's actually a lot lot of stuff that I learned from just playing this game. That's great. Uh, Caitlin? Sure. Well, I'm uh, Caitlin. I'm a uh, lead economic and monetization designer at Rovio. You can see from my sweater. And um, yeah, I got my, my start in the games industry in Montreal. I was working at uh, Funcom on the secret world. And I kind of got uh, thrown into the deep end with that one. I showed up on my my first day of work asking all sorts of questions about how to get rich in their game and you know how their, their trading system works. And the uh, lead designer very quickly realized, holy shoot, she actually has a, a huge interest in 
you know, video games and, and, and the monetization economic systems and how they, how they interact with how the players actually, you know, work with these systems, work with each other. And he just sort of showed me the deep end of the pool. If you use that analogy and uh, yeah, I dove right in and uh, worked on that, worked on several other um, MMO AAA projects in Montreal. Then I got a, uh, job here in Finland working in mobile and I've been in mobile now for uh almost six years this summer and yeah that's great yeah okay well let's let's talk about some uh, game economy stuff so uh yeah. for folks that are like what's a game economy I, I know what a game is um you know maybe, maybe let's just like do a definition of that who would who would like to define what a game economy is Sure, I can go on that one. So when looking at game economies, uh, really what we're considering is any way in which the player makes a makes a transaction. So converts one thing that they have for one thing that they want. So that can be as obvious as, hey, I've got real world money and I want speed ups or I want this really awesome skin. But it can also be more complicated things like I want to get this, you know, event exclusive item. What content do I need to do in order to earn it? So understanding how the player's desires for rewards can be used to drive them into different content and basically spread the, the players to, to different areas of the game that they might not experience otherwise. So to make sure that I'm wrapping my head around what a game economy is, um, let, let's take a, like a mid-core RPG game as an example. And so, you know, I've seen a lot of these games where uh, you, you kind of collect a bunch of heroes and you go and you do campaigns. Uh, campaigns have certain drops um, and those drops can be used towards upgrading your heroes from, you know, regular to green to blue to purple, you know, whatever, five stars. Um, and, you know, you might have like raid tickets so you can go and like do those levels really fast and you have some sort of uh, stamina mechanic. So, you know, if I'm thinking about my economy, what all of those different pieces would you guys factor into the economy? Would it be like, the diamonds that I use to buy more stamina? Would it be the stamina itself? Like, you know, what are the different aspects that I should consider as economy if I'm trying to, you know, design it? Just, uh, uh, I have a try at this. Uh, for me, this is not only the currencies, but also the system that supports the transaction between those economies. So that would, okay, what, what exactly. I would call game economy. It's like, it's not only the, the diamonds and stuff, but it's also, how do you handle those diamonds? And you know, also, how do you? What's the scarcity? What's the strategy behind? So it's not only it's the the currency themselves, the transaction, the systems that support the transaction, and the overall strategy that just you know rules overall those system and why they are there. So that this is what I would just describe as this game economy in this in this context. Mm. Yeah, because sometimes the you know economies are all about you know, scarcity, like what do I have and what do I want to have? Yeah. And, you know, that, that scarcity can be a currency, but it can also be something like time. I mean, if I'm, if I'm investing a lot of time into, you know, upgrading this particular character or, 
you know, um, you know, if I'm working with my with my guild, you know, I might spend a great amount of time just hanging out with friends. And that is also a scarcity. I mean, we only have so much time on this rock. So, you know, what what do we want the players to be spending their time doing and and using the, the economy to sort of nudge them into different different paths? So, mm. yeah, I mean, it's not always just a currency. It can be even just like time as a currency. Mm. So it yeah, sounds, yeah, go on, Javier. No, on, on this topic, I think that um, whenever I think on, on how would explain what game economy is to, to somebody, it would be probably to com, com, compare it or with the, or what are, uh, pointing out what are the main differences against, uh, actual economy um <laughs> essentially economy it's a system where like or well it's a very complex <laughs> definition and <laughs> there are thousands of them uh but essentially we could say that uh, real economy it's about uh, it's a, a study of the production and the distribution of, of different resources it deals with the scarcity i think that the main difference between that and and games which actually explains a lot of what are the objectives, some some of which you were mentioning, is the fact that um, in games, uh, the objective is not only a proper distribution of, of the resources uh, or even the uh, a proper or an optimal distri uh, production and distribution of the resources, because th that, the, especially the, the production, for example, that essentially the developer can just put a couple more zeros and, and make it, but <laughs> rather, it's it's uh, the 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 thing with game economy is that it affects the behavior of the player inside the game. And contrary to real economy, where you are kind of limited on the on your ability to design the economy, because the the economy is already designed, and basically governments or whatever economy regulators do have a specific things that they can touch in order to alter the economy but on games you can tweak the entire economy and you can actually yeah. tweak the uh, world rules in ways that will affect the economy which that is not possible on on the real economy of course and essentially i would say that the the game economy it's the entire management of of, of value of the game and and that includes uh scarcity you know uh, desire for players to obtain things, uh, mm -hmm. time required to obtain things, because time is kind of a currency as well when, it, when we're oh, talking yeah. it, it is. Uh, about, about um, game game economy. And, and I think the, the key objective is that it's all about generating a player behavior and, and modifying the player behavior and essentially creating uh, a player behavior that it's fun and that yeah. also you can monetize I, I, <laughs> if we're I talking would, free to play. <laughs> I would add on that something that, you know, just when you said made me realize something that the game economy is inherently linked to game progression because it also, you know, allows you to know how fast you can go because, you know, the, the difference between the current normal economy and, and the game economy is that everyone is on a journey that starts at different moments. And, you know, we are supposed to control this journey. And also this goes through controlling what the economy is going to look like for some specific yeah. players. Mm. Yeah, I think that's also a superpower that we have as game makers. <laughs> that we're just shaping yeah. the journey. 
Yeah, I think another important thing to to mention that the difference between you know real world economy and game economy is game economies have to be fun. Like you, you have to, it has to be pleasant to interact with because it's so easy for a player to just be, eh, I don't want to play this game no more and go to a different title. So you, you can't really do that in the real world. You can't say, uh, this economy isn't working for me. I'm going to go do, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you, you can't really opt out of the real world economic impacts, but you absolutely can with a video game. I mean, if I'm playing a game and the economy isn't isn't balanced, if it's not, you know, if I'm looking at this game and I'm seeing, okay, well, these players who do this content are rewarded, you know, substantially better than the players who do this other content. And I don't want to do that first one. You know, it's not fun for me. And True. if it's not fun, I'm just going to go play something else because again, like, as we said, time, time is precious and, I'm not going to waste my time spending it playing a game that I don't enjoy. So part of the the real challenge as an economy game designer is really getting into the player's head and understanding the behavioral economics of why interacting with this particular system is enjoyable for the player. And like the the, the holy grail of monetization design is you want your players to spend money in your game and be so stoked by what they, by the whole experience from the visuals, from the sound, from the actual rewards that they feel great about it. They're excited. They want to tell their, their, their friends and their coworkers and their, their buddies like, Hey dude, I just spent 10 bucks in, in such and such a game. And I got this cool thing. You got to try it. That is the holy grail of uh, of economic monetization game design is to get that excitement, that uh, you know, that honest joy into the players, you know, into the player's psyche every time they interact with your with either your monetization system or your base economy or anything like that. You want them to have that yeah moment, and that that that's really the the challenge. That comes out of it because I mean, when when Tom and I spoke earlier, I mentioned that like making it, making a Skinner box that's you know exploitive, anybody can do that. That that's not you know that that that's, that science has been known for for decades now. Like it's not hard to make a super exploitive you know non-respecting monetization system. And yeah, you can make money doing that. But at the end of the day, players are gonna they're gonna remember what. You know, they're going to remember that experience, and if your your studio, you know, has their name front and center on that title, they're going to remember you next time. And you know, they might not be quite so keen to download another one of your titles if they remember, oh yeah, the last one they didn't treat me all that well. But on the flip side, if you if you give them that awesome experience, if you respect the player's time, yeah, you might make a little bit less money in the next quarter, but. 10 quarters from now, when you're releasing, you know, two or three more products, two or three more titles, and the players, they remember, oh, yeah, that studio, they were awesome. You know, they, 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 they gave me, you know, they, they respected me as a person, as a player. They're far more likely to click that download button the next time they see your, your studio logo pop up. And over the long run, you'll make way more money by being, you know, 
more respectful and more more honest with your players about what they're getting for for their buck but that's a lot harder as a game designer <laughs> you know you, you've got to put a lot more effort and a lot more time into you know designing these systems testing these systems iterating on these systems so it's you know it's always a challenge of you know how much how, how much profit do you need right now to pay the bills but also how much can you um, invest in future future development by having these these awesome systems that take longer to put in but pay out more in the long term so what is it about an economy that actually makes it fun um, I, I was kind of, oh that, mull- that's quite the, that's quite the question. <laughs> and, and maybe I'll isolate this down. Have, have any of you guys played, uh, Valhelm? It's, it's been blowing up yeah. on Steam. No, lately. I haven't. I've been, I've been meaning to get it. Cause yeah, it has been, it's been everywhere. Like all of my friends have been posting about how awesome this game is. And I'm like, Oh, I've got to try it. Okay. So I, I started a server with some friends and I haven't been able to play it as much as them, but every time I like log in, they've like done all this crazy stuff. Um, but, uh, the game terrifies me like i feel like i i go out and i try to do things and i just get slaughtered or like i stumble into a new biome and something just comes over and like kills me in one hit it's like it's a terrifying place uh, but like you've got to go out and you've got to find things and you've got to like find new things so you know first you got to figure out like where's the copper okay where does that exist i have to go explore looking for it while i'm like terrified that something's going to kill me um then maybe you get a little bit stronger and you're feeling pretty good. Then you've got to go find iron. Um, and it's a very new thing and there's much more fewer like other monsters that'll just also kill you. Um, so you're just like out there looking for stuff. And, you know, I was thinking about that, you know, in terms of the economy, it's like the economy is really like, okay, where are all the different like iron deposits and copper deposits and things like that, that are in the game. Um, and yeah, they, they don't have any in-app purchases in there, but if they did, uh, after I, you know, <laughs> slogged out looking for iron for a couple hours and I managed to come back and get a couple bars, if you hit me with a offer to buy 50 iron for a couple bucks, yeah, you know, maybe I would do that so I could get my armor and feel stronger, stronger about it. But, um, it, it's interesting to think about it, but you know, what about all that experience actually makes it fun because, I am looking for iron. I am interacting with the game economy, right? So, you mm-hmm. know, what about that action is fun and how can I take that and apply that to other games? So if I can give my two cents on that, um, I think that actually one of the um, key things when it comes to designing a game economy is that contrary to real economy, in real economy, you try to have the economy systems uh, as optimal and non-friction and and they tend to uh, equilibrium uh, in games you can what you need to do is to introduce uh, frictions and to introduce uh, the system has to be unbalanced in a way that that um, allows you to to or forces you or incentivizes you incentivizes you to uh, interact with the game mechanics that are going to make them to make the game fun so uh, imagine in, in, in Valheim the the game the, the resource acquisition was designed in a way that you didn't have to interact with the world you didn't have to explore and so on though that economy uh, would 
be driving you away from the points of the game that are going to create these kind of whoa moments where where you are having fun and you're you're creating uh, memorable uh, experiences i think that the key to to good game economies are those that incentivize the players to to specific behaviors that uh, make make the player um, interact with with mechanics and and with behaviors that are going to create the psychological effect of of uh, fun. Now, what specific mechanics generate fun? Uh, honestly, I don't know. Uh, my technique <laughs> has always been. <laughs> my, my technique uh, has always been uh, to study player behavior and to uh, interact with the audience in order to detect uh, which are the points that generate fun. And then I try to modify the, the game economy or to design the game economy in a way that makes the players uh, go over and over through that situations and makes those, those situations that uh, were perceived as fun or that created an emotional reaction from the player happen more often. So for example, um, if, if uh, one of the most fun things in the game is uh, to create like this very specific build that is going to make that you win once every 10 times, but that, that time you win, it, you feel awesome and it kind of pays off for the nine defeats that you got, probably I'm going to build the, or I'm going to try to uh, make that in the game economy. It makes sense to go to acquire these, uh, you know, uh, items or equipment or whatever that uh, is going to generate this, this situation, mm -hmm. or at least I'm going to make worth that if you play with a style that gives you only one victory out of, uh, out of 10 matches, uh, because that victory was so fun, it's going to be as rewarding as uh, having a 50% uh, ratio with with uh, another equipment or another style of play that is not as fun, for example. Yeah, yeah. I think part of it is really understanding what the the target market is for your title. Um, yeah, I, I've I've worked in some various studios in the past where they've said, oh, well, we'll we'll find our target market once the game is is in soft launch or once the game is in launch, and that rarely works well. Um, you've got to know what your target market is, what it is that draws them to your game in order to know how to um, incentivize them with rewards in, in the gameplay. Like if you look at you know, Valheim or um, you know, uh, Minecraft as a more, you know, as, a, as an older example, like they are very, very heavily in the, the exploration like yeah, there are there is combat elements. You know, you've got your creepers, you've got your your ghasts, you've got your your zombie pigmen, and all those things that you've got to kill off in 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 Minecraft. But at the end of the day, it's it's an exploration game, and their economic loop rewards you for exploring. I mean, you go into the you go into the the underground, and that that's where you find the best loot, that's where you find the diamonds. And then, you know, that's where you find the the underground fortresses, which allows you go to the, you know, to the nether, to the end. And that that's that's where their, econo their, their economic loop lies is in exploration. Um, the, the, there is some rewards for combat, but that's not where it really shines. And knowing what your game is, targeting like are you targeting explore exploration players are you targeting combat players 
uh, are you targeting um, collection players? And putting your rewards in those those fields is really what will help give your game that fun loop. Like uh, you know, you're mentioning in 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 Valheim, like going off and exploring, looking for that iron, is what gave you those fun moments. And there was you know little sprinkles of combat around that, like when the troll comes out and you know smacks you into the side of the head. But what drove you out there was the exploration, and that's what gave you that whole uh, experience around it. So yeah, they know what their what their game is. It's an exploration game, and when you're designing your game, you know this is this goes like right into the the pre-prototyping stage. Like when you're initially coming up with like, oh yeah, let's make a this type of game. Um, that's when you should be deciding how your how your economic loop is going to reward players. Like if it's if we're if we're looking at an exploration game, okay, we want players to go out and find things. So that's how we want to reward players. If it's a, a combat game, okay, we want there to be a lot of different types of combat so we can reward players for fighting different things. And yeah, so that that's a very important thing is understanding what your what your market is and why why players are drawn to your game in the first place. Because one thing that you know one of my leads told me, which really stuck with me over the years, is that players will, uh, if given the opportunity, players will optimize the fun out of any game. You have to make sure that the most optimal route is, you know, po points the players to at least one of the one of the more fun ways to play your game. You don't want players to be rewarded for playing your game badly. <laughs> you know, you don't want them to be rewarded for playing your game in a a boring manner in, a, in an unfun way. You always want them to be re the best rewards to come from the most fun parts of your game. That's great. I, I like that. Yeah, that's cool. Just my two cents on this. I think it's called. It comes back to the my favorite free-to-play world, which is progression. I think what you all guys said is just all of those games. What they had in common is like, what was your journey through Valheim? What were you trying to achieve, and how the game economy was basically making you, you know, achieve those goals. So in this case, there was a, a progression of armor, of power. You could very well put a number on this and say you need to reach 500. If, even if this number doesn't is not displayed, this is your goal. Your goal was to get stronger. And the Agamekomi was supporting this by giving you rewards, currency. In Valheim, you don't really have I mean, yeah, a little bit, but you know, it's more about gathering resources to be able, and those resources are the economy because you know how scarce they are, how hard it is to get them. It's game economy, and this is what Absolutely. made it fun because you had a journey and you had a clear goal, which was, you know, I know the legend said that you can harpoon some sort of boss using the drive the the, the boat and stuff. I haven't reached this spot yet, but I mean, you know, that's a goal. My goal is clear. I want to do this. So, how do I reach this? Then the whole system is funneled is funneling you through this journey and this is what makes game economy great because you have clear goal clear understanding of how you want to lead your players and how hard and time consuming it's gonna be so that's what makes a great game economy in my opinion yeah so i i get how that all works together but um you know what if i'm in the pre-production phase and i i want to be able to you know simulate or plan out what this actually looks like so that i can kind of achieve what I feel like is the right balance. Obviously you can always balance it later, but like, can you simulate a game economy 
in pre-production so that you can have your best foot forward, you know, when you start. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, you're, you're, you're limited based on what your assumptions are. And I mean, you can assume what players will behave, like how much, uh, how, how far will they walk from their base? Um, how many NPCs will they attack during a 24 hour period? Um, how much sleep will the actual physical player get during, during a day? Um, you know, how long is the player session going to be? And yeah, you can absolutely simulate uh, the, the player economics by using these assumptions and using the, the drop rates, the spawn rates, the you know, average distance to X for an exploration game and simulate you know, how, how, how the player will progress through the systems, how they will earn rewards, how they will spend rewards. But of course, during, during these early phases, the, the, the biggest variance is you know, your experience as a designer. How good can you make these assumptions? How close can you make them to reality? And that's where experience as a economic designer really comes in because you, know, you can, you know, you're basically making your best guesses and that, that's, that, that's where the, the years of experience comes in. Now, once you're actually in soft launch or, or launch launch, um, you can start harvesting real player data and refining your assumptions, refining your your simulations to get a more accurate picture of what uh, what player behavior will be within your game. Um, like for example, within you know a title I'm working on, we assume players would do X content five times per day. Turns out they're doing it closer to twenty times per day. Okay, so we had to change how the rewards work because players were doing it way more than we thought they were going to. So we originally made it very rewarding in order to try and entice them to, to get them to do it more often. We were too good at that and players just started doing it all the time. So we had to scale down the rewards a little bit in order to make them uh, more balanced over the, the 24 hour period so that it didn't outweigh other reward cycles. So it's important to have that uh, that assumptions going forward at the very beginning. But once you start getting real data, you need to start refining those assumptions and uh, updating your models and seeing whether your models are still giving you the results you want. And if not, you need to change how your economy is balanced. Um, you know, I always say that play players can never play a game wrong, but designers can design the game wrong. So you have to you have to accept that players are going to play the game the way they want to play the game, and you can only nudge them very gently. So you have to build your game around the way that they play. It's I, I don't fully agree with the nudge gently. I know that <laughs> well, my experience is building free to play is actually crafting a controlled experience, even if people are going to diverge from this. Uh, a lot of this comes to just controlling their the way they're gonna interact with the game. I think that free to play mm -hmm. are a great example of this. Just to jump back on the subject, so because that's what I've been doing uh, the most, I think. So I, I'm like you, Kate Slane. I like to do simulations and stuff in pre-prod. So what I do is basically building algorithm to just play the game over and over again. 
Yeah. And just act like so. Um, I and when I say play, it's basically building some sort of an, of an AI, simple one. You know that makes decision oh, yeah. on your economy, and then just and then you build player profiles. You can say so. Something I've been using is the you know the explorer, uh, killer, or whatever model, psychological model, and based mm -hmm. of this, a killer might react differently when it when it comes to making a choice. So the the bots oh, yeah. will, will interact with the algorithm differently so this yep. is how what i've been what i've been used to making you know you have all of those player profile that can be that's a guy it doesn't have to be a guy you know that's a player <laughs> that that plays a game uh, twice a day 15 minutes that is more a, a collector than anything else um he has 10 bucks per month to spend and can watch 50 ads or and based on this the full game economy is going to be modeled and then you get the output and the output is like yep. it takes 43 days and 33 minutes to reach the level 53 and have and he opened the 536 sketches and have three legendary scott yep. and that's what i've so i think you can definitely do this i in terms of tools i think you can do it with cool sheets excel uh very well i think those tools tends to be pretty limited so i've been coding everything into python algorithm for a while that so you just code the algorithm yourself just define basically it's just coding the game without the gameplay so this is how i've been describing it <laughs> oh, and yeah, you will absolutely. be able to assume a lot of this stuff so that's why i i do i do i do do i do do guesses <laughs> i do guess yeah. a little bit but it comes at the end to just being able to model so many profiles that you say this there's extreme cases because someone that might do this and this and this will be able to just progress so fast that we don't want that how can we limit this yeah. and someone that doesn't play enough so you maybe we say the normal guy that just play in the subway is never gonna reach the final boss because it's way too hard to get this currency so we need some sort of of more source for those guys that can have more gold per minute so the source is way better more way optimized for those guys because they need the money if not they are gonna churn it's gonna take too long yeah, yeah absolutely so this is having those, yeah, having those um, those simulations and those assumptions are are vital in in yeah. early early design. Um, but it's also important to revisit those assumptions as you as you develop the game because sometimes like the the game you think you're making on on day one is just not the game that you're making. You know, a, a week, a month six months from now six months from now you you, mm. you look at your initial assumptions and you're just like what game was this for <laughs> sometimes yeah sometimes yeah, I, I tend to be pretty accurate or some you know but it's, yeah I mean, it's, but i mean it's, that, that's, it's where, hard. that's where the experience comes in i mean that's that's where you know hiring someone with years of experience as a as an economics or monetization designer can save your company so much effort and and you know, just lost production going forward. I mean, sometimes you you bring someone in, they look at one of your designs and they're just like, oh, I don't know about this one. And you can save the, you know, you can save a game sometimes by just cutting out one bad feature or putting in, you know, one extra feature. And yeah, having having someone with that expertise who can look at the, look at your, look at your project and just say, okay, it's missing x y and z and it's got too much a b and c let's redistribute some of our some of our efforts some of our some of our manpower into 
things that can really, you know, turn this game from an eh to a, you know, genre defining hit on the store. Yeah, I think that if somebody is starting out to plan a, a game economy, uh, I, I, honestly, I think that what I always do like these three things, uh, which are related to stuff that you folks mentioned. Uh, the first is agent assumption. So I create some personas and try to identify, but that should be done for every area of design, but in game economy, it's also super important. What are the kind of mechanics that they are going to enjoy, et cetera, that's gonna give you clues on how to you know, design the different uh, economic to push towards different behaviors and so on. And I completely agree with the fact that uh, assumptions are, are not very good, like, or at least my own approach is, okay, you need assumptions to start, but you wanna move away from those assumptions as soon as possible and try to replace that fast with real data just to the risk your assumptions. Um, of course, having somebody experienced uh, is gonna make that the data assumptions are, are right most of the time, but um, not even, not. I think that in our industry, no degree of, of uh, experience guarantees a 100% um, success ratio on predictions yeah. or assumptions. So even if the predictions will require less movement in order to reach reality, I think that the best approach is to try to gather player, um, player feedback and glad gather player data as soon as possible um, in order to polish to polish the model and to properly understand uh, how it's going to actually be, be the actual behavior of, of the player in the game. Uh, the second is uh, economy foundations, and that has to do with how do I build my uh, prediction model or what? I call it control model. I'm not sure if it's a standard word, but I al always call it the, the simulation. I always call, call it a control model. There are several tools to do that. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised it hasn't been mentioned. I actually wanted to ask you, maybe you can answer later on this, if you have tried out uh, machinate, machinations. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I I've checked it out. Um, they I think they it's changed. An... They changed their, their website. I knew it when it was an open source project from the university when I was mm -hmm. a, a student, and now they they built a company around it. So shout out to machinations. <laughs> the guys are great. <laughs> So w one thing they've monetized it. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. So one one thing is I, I think that building this a simulation is is really something that should be mandatory because you need to predict time that is going. To, uh, w without a simulation, you basically are not going to be able to predict what is going to be the player behavior, and you, you're not going to be able to um, you know know stuff like how many. How much money do I have to give? Uh, how much time does it take to reach this point and this point? Uh, what I do usually is that I start economy with what I call the economy foundations. Usually it's um, setting up on stone uh, some agreements on how much time translates into how much, uh, or creating some high level equivalence, equivalences between time, uh, currency, uh, damage, DPS, and, and so on, like kind of those foundation agreements. And then uh, that makes building the, the the model much, much easier. I think I, I've also 
seeing that it makes my models uh, do not fall into excessive complexity, because if I set these um, strong foundations at the beginning uh, for, for the economy, then I don't have uh, three different sources of, of currency which work with different, uh, completely different ratios and, and, and stuff like that. I, um, I don't have, or at least I do have under control the different um, ratio of acquisitions of the different features of, of the game and, and so on. So I would recommend also build this kind of economy foundations, this kind of high level equivalence between time, different currencies and, and so on. And that makes creating assumptions for how much time are going to players play and, and so on much easier and it makes easier to make the model. Um, now about the model, and I wanted to answer to Hadrian on this point, um, is I've, I've tried AI, I've, I've tried um, AI modeling for, for the games, uh, I've tried machinations, I've tried a, a lot of things. Honestly, what I use is Excel after uh, at the end of the yeah. just because uh, or that has been my experience. Maybe I don't code as fast as you, but my experience with both machinations or, or coding a, an AI or uh, you know building internal tools and so on is that um, especially during the production of the game, I, I may be introducing changes so fast that um, the the time between I decide or I I'm toying in my head with one idea and being able to integrate it on the simulation, I want that time to be as short as possible. And yeah. then what I've seen is that on Excel, I'm able to rep, to you know put some quick numbers together really really fast. And what I appreciate yeah. on the let's say pre-production or early production or early early production of, of a feature is the ability to keep it on a wibbly-wobbly economy state where I can mutate it really fast. Um, so I think that if, and this is actually my main problem, the main problem that I have with machinations is the fact that once you have everything set up, it's super understandable, it's, it's easy to, to explain to people that may not be um, uh, experts on the, or may not be aware of all the intricacies and, and everything, It, but I feel it's not as fast, maybe I'm not good at it enough, but <laughs> I feel it's not as fast to test new things and, and to just put some numbers together. That's why I use Excel because it allows, it allows me to test ideas and put some random numbers and, and check stuff like really, really quick. And I, I value speed. I think that sometimes in game economy I, uh, or essentially in creative ideation, I feel that sometimes having it perfect is not as valuable as being able to have it fast because that yeah. will allow you to code bad ideas really fast and you really don't know, don't need the extreme accuracy in order to know that something is a bad idea. Like you can probably predict that um, faster. So basically if I, if I, somebody is starting out thinking on an economy or something like that, and I had to recommend it how to start, I would, suggest with these three things like agent assumptions, uh, like create personas, economic agents, um, uh, set up some economy foundations, and then build a control model based on those based on those foundations. And then, of yeah. course, like Caitlin said, alter that, 
based on the behavior you actually see on your player. So yeah. if somebody is doing 20 times what you expected five, you need to retweak the model. And, and, and also another thing that I feel it's also important is gather the mood of the, of the player. So um, if pl players are doing something, the exact number that you wanted them to, uh, to do, but they are not enjoying it or they are not fully understanding or they're hating it every, every single step of the way, um, probably that's, you know, you, you need to tweak it even if, if the um, assumption is, is right. Another point that um, I also feel very useful is, um, and, and I think it, it's really related to knowing your audience, is sometimes you can think a better um, economy feature or a feature that would make the economy make more sense, but um, you need to take in account that the audience is going to also expect a certain economy to behave in a certain way. So for example, I'm a huge fan of set rotations uh, and I love this thing of, okay, I cannot play with my units anymore and now I have this to collect these other new units, but you also need to take in account if that makes sense to the assumptions that the players have in their heads on how the economy work. And even if it makes sense on the paper, maybe players hate that at the end of the season, they lose all their progression or all their inventory. And yeah. that kind of thing, those kind of things have to be taken in account as well. Yeah. And, uh, okay, go on, Kaitlin, go on. Yeah, I, you know, well, I was just going to say that like tools like machinations are extremely useful when you've got an economy with um, high degrees of player choices. So, for example, um, you know, I have multiple types of heroes that I could be upgrading at the same time. Uh, machinations can allow you to actually like click through. It's like, okay, what happens if the player upgrades this hero? You know, upgrades more of these heroes than these heroes. Um, it's also a fantastic tool for uh, demonstrating an economic flow to um, like an ex uh, executives, um, outside sources, people who are not, uh, you know, design focused. You know, this can work well for, you know, showing it to artists, showing it to um, QA, uh, just in general, showing it to people who are not, you know, super uh uh, Excel junkies like the rest, of the, like the, like the designers tend to be, but uh, yeah, I definitely agree with um, uh, Javier. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Um, that the uh, you know, if I'm actually in the guts uh, of making a economy, um, yeah, ninety nine percent of the time I'm using using Excel just because it's so quick and easy to you know, change a number, change a scaling rate, um, and seeing how it, you know, if I've got a, a, a graph up there, it can show me exactly how things are changing in real time. And if I've got the 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 sheet hot linked to, you know, the config to, you know, another sim, I can pull in data using, you know, named ranges, and I can just change one number and it will be updated across multiple places. And I can see how that will you know, affect different aspects of the game. Like if I change, okay, if I want players to, you know, recruit this this troop uh, and I increase the price by 5%, how does that change their ability to be able to upgrade their buildings? How does that change their, you know, their PVP uh, rewards? So all these sorts of things can, you know, have these um, cascading effects 
which can be a little bit easier to see in, in an Excel sheet where you've got things linked uh, properly between the various tables. So yeah, I mean, if I'm, if I'm gonna be presenting something to the board, yeah, machinations, perfect tool. But if I'm, if I'm neck deep in, in, in the actual economy and I'm still in the process of making it instead of modeling it um, after it's been made, then yeah, for that, I much prefer, prefer working in Excel. I, I do tend to, so I've been working with Excel quite a lot. I even made the a custom plugin that just auto create columns and stuff based on my needs. So nice. the, yeah, I know, I know the gold old days. Uh, no, the, the, the thing with, so machination is great. Their framework is actually very clever. The way they handle currencies and sources and, and pools yeah. and the way, all of this definition of stuff. I actually stole most of this to create my own framework because this is great. This is just baseline good. So I, I use this. Excel tends to be a bit limited when it comes to multiple loops of, of iteration of things. Yes. You yes, cannot just absolutely. do, you cannot ask Excel to do, tell, do 10,000 iteration of this economy because there's a couple of randoms and drops and rates and stuff. <laughs> if they ever add how to do a for loop, in yeah, Excel. I know. I know. This is I what I was discussing so this with stoked. a designer well, friend. They don't have a plugin for that. It seems like Me too. Uh, it's, it's because Excel is not thought this way. Excel is thought in a column uh, and yeah. line. It's, it, it, it's, it's an accountant's tool. Yeah, like yeah, Excel yeah. is really designed for accountants, but this, game designers have kind of usurped it for, for this other Excel. task. And yeah, like having, I mean, the yeah, having having for loops that can that could run in, in Excel would just be... It would be too too powerful, and Excel is just also not great at working with a list of stuff, and like like list mm -hmm. of, of creatures of you no, know, and you know it's just, it doesn't do loops basically. Yeah. <laughs> Excel yeah. doesn't do loops, you know that's why. But yeah, that's a great tool for approximation, and uh, it, it it's, it's not. I, I don't think modeling and coding your algorithm should should be a standalone thing. It should be plus. Your actual model in Excel for the values and changing them for the current oh, yeah. normal balancing. So yeah, yeah, totally agree with you. Yeah, I think that another thing that maybe uh, we, we haven't mentioned and it's really important is that yeah. even if things make sense on the simulation and make sense on the Excel, you need <laughs> yep. to play it. Play the game. <laughs> because, yeah. Um, I've seen so many <laughs> times on 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 my career like stuff that really makes sense on the paper and sure, money. and then you you. You play it and, and it's terrible and like yeah. even if it's something that is you know achievable in in three or four days of playing, you feel like it's gonna take you like 100 years and stuff like that. So um, like yep. probably um, I, I haven't found any replacement to uh, at some step uh, at some step or probably yeah. at every single step um, manually play testing and like yeah. making sure that. The, and the actual I would, behavior that the player is, is, is going through makes sense. And it's uh, also extremely yeah. vital to get non-economists to play your game because <laughs> like we, we're, 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 too, we're too close to it. We know how things work. So we know how we expect the players to react to things. You know, if, if we expect the players to be like, oh, wow, I got a diamond out of the the ground but we call it uh you know common quartz then yeah. the player might not actually find it as awesome as we intend it to be 
So getting getting non-economists in to play the game who don't necessarily know the value of things can really help you understand how a how a real player will react to will emotionally react to your economy because just because as you said just because the economy is balanced on a spreadsheet doesn't mean that the player thinks it's balanced in their head. So True. another another thought on. Um... You know, getting something that works on a spreadsheet and what we expect, it's going to take 43 days to complete this. I feel like in the real world, at least for your high-end, really engaged users, you might think it's going to take two weeks <laughs> yep. for them to get through something and then they're done in like a day or two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how do you guys account for that sort of thing when you're trying to design your economy? Like, do you just know that okay, even though I think this is going to take them six months, they're probably going to be done in like a week. Um, or, you know, do you try to factor that into your game economy design at some level? Absolutely. I mean, you've, you've got to account for how long it's going to take players to consume the content. And, you know, I, I know players tend to, to hate uh, time gating where there's some artificial limit on how fast they can progress through through a um, through a given piece of content either it's you know hey you have to craft this this potion of fire resistance in order to be able to go up to the further up the volcano and it takes 48 hours to craft it um, you know player, players tend to hate those things but as designers it's a good um, safety net that we can use to ensure that players don't um, burn themselves out on content. You know, going back to that that thing I said earlier about how players will optimize the fun out of any any game that they play, uh, that can also apply to uh, just doing content so much and so repetitively that it loses its entertainment value. So sometimes as a designer, we have to slow the player down in order to actually make the game more fun in the long term for them. And yeah, if you don't have any any hard controls over how fast the player can consume a content, uh, you basically just have to assume that however long it physically takes for them to complete the content, that's how long it's going to take. So if it's 24 hours to physically click the buttons to do the content, someone will finish that content in 24 hours, probably 23. <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> probably. Yeah, so, but even if you intend it to last for six months, someone's going to finish it in twenty-three hours. So yeah, it's it's important to understand how the how fast the player will be able physically able to consume the content and whether or not that is a pleasant experience, whether or not that's what you want the players to do. Because yeah, I mean, if that's the optimal way to finish the content, that's how players are going to do it. Hmm. Yeah, you should add, add on Sorry. that maybe Javier like, like don't be afraid of thinking like a whale don't be yeah. afraid of someone that's good, that can and that will maybe spend tens of thousands of dollars on an oh, event yeah, absolutely. Or like, just you know never never underestimate this, this the power that players and payers will have I know it, those are free to play games. They are going to be whales, and most engaged people are also uh, payers. So don't be afraid when you model these things to say, what if? 
you know what if someone's just breaks all the gates what if someone has unlimited diamonds or <laughs> or just unlimited yeah. resources it's just the, because the time is limited the physical action is limited but you know some people will break those walls and you have to take this in account all the time and the best way to do it is in my opinion is just to to model to model those like what what does it mean to spend one hundred dollar on this event? Like, what is physically? What can you do with what's what five hundred one hundred worth of currency? Mm. And is it a good experience? Is it good, is it meaningful to spend one hundred dollars on this on this pack for this event for this gacha for this whatever you're designing for? And this you should never forget about this in in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things I was saying earlier about how, you know, you want to make sure that the player has a awesome experience with spending money in your game. And yeah, like what you're saying, uh, Adrian, really, really hit hit that nail right on the head. Like you want to model out like, okay, if I spend 10 bucks, what's my experience? Is it fun? If I spend a hundred bucks, what's my experience? Is it still fun? If I, if I spend a hundred thousand bucks, What's my experience? And very importantly, is it, is it still fun? Because yeah, I mean, so many free-to-play games, I look at them and I'm like, yeah. But if I had unlimited money, if I if I was a, you know, rich, you know, oil tycoon, and money was no object to me, I could completely spend myself out of your game. Yeah, I I could just drop in a whole bunch of money, be done the game, and be done the game like there's not, there's nothing for me to do so making sure that there's uh you know the the even if you do drop infinite money into the game that all that does is gets you you know get, gets you more fun that's yeah. ideally like anytime you spend money it needs to be a fun multiplier it can't just be skipping the tedium because otherwise it's just like yeah okay at the end of the day it's tedious. You, you want the you want the money to be a fun multiplier. That's why cheaters never last long in the games because oh, no. it's boring. It's boring yeah. to cheat. You, you turn on IDKFA and you know, yeah, the, it's no longer fun. There's no, no challenge to it anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, usually usually what I do is that in the control models, I whenever I set up the different uh, players or the control model has like you know player that is very engaged, players that is not very engaged. I, I would recommend that folks create a player that has no like has infinite time and player that has infinite time and has infinite resources. I also yeah. think it's it's uh, timers, no uh, linking a little bit with what uh, Kathleen said. Um, it's it's a bit tricky, no, because um, I've seen, for example, in in especially when when releasing new features for a live audience um uh, so for example on on uh on monster legends we we um had this thing like this superb unit and in order to get it and to get it maxed out you needed uh resources that you could only get on events that appeared once every uh once every week so actually we know that if you collect the entire set of resources of that event and even if you want to pay, it's going to take you like three months um, because the, you collect the event and the event is not going to appear again. And one of the earlier designs that we tested out was um, instead of having um, the event appear over, over and over again, make that once you complete the event, the event closes 
and you get a timer uh, of one week, and then it would open again. Uh, we were thinking, okay, and then we can monetize and make, you know, with, with players, there's one or two days left and want to accelerate. But what was happening is that players were hating it and they didn't want it because instead of they thinking, okay, if I wait, I can have it on three months or thinking, okay, if, if I pay a little bit, I can get it. Um, I can cut three weeks out of the seven weeks, uh, so uh, out of the seven uh, days. Um, what they were thinking is, okay, I want it now, and because I want it now, I need to pay this infinite um, or this super insane amount of money, and I hate it. This uh, you're you're super greedy and and so on. So I think um, it's it's very important to to take in account uh, um, player feedback and to um, understand that even if even for players that have infinite resources, spending those those resources should should feel right, should feel um, that you're getting um, something awesome. On that specific experience, one thing we learned is that uh, players were super happy on paying for not missing out the chance to maximize the acquisition on, a, on every specific um, event uh, event ap appearance. But they were not, they, they, they hated having to pay in order to uh, skip the, the time between one event and 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 the other, um, and and those kind of things are, are, are I think it, are super important, not to understand how what people hate when when they spend and what do they enjoy in order to make that make sure that the uh, monetization options on your game actually make people uh, feel right, and you cannot pay away the fun of the game. How do you how do you figure out those things? I, I think this is the second time you mentioned, you know, like gathering players' viewpoints. Is it just surveys? Is it listening to community? Like, what is the best way for me to to do that and actually know from like a data perspective that I'm like talking to the right people that have done the right thing and I'm getting like the right answers that I can actually have insights on, right? You you really need multiple ways of of collecting the feedback. I mean, surveys are great at um, getting, you know, players' opinions of what they think they know. So if a, if a player will, uh, you know, what what they what they think they think is fun, uh, you know, the, the reason why I specify that is because sometimes players will think that they are doing certain activities more often than they are, or will think they're doing activities far less than they actually are. So it's important to contrast the, the surveys, which is their perceptions, with in-game activities, which is more of a, a hard data. Um, so like, how many times are they clicking on this button? How many, time, how, how many seconds do they spend looking at this uh, dialogue? How many uh, times do they um, you know, check, check the reward panel to see, how, see what their progress is? Um, but of course, those those hard numbers don't have any emotion behind it. So that's where the surveys come in. And so you have to use them in conjunction. You know, you've, you've got the, the surveys, which give you the emotion and the uh, the hard data from your your analytics, which gives you the, the hard numbers. And yeah, sometimes surveys are great. Sometimes even just like Hey, if you've got a big spender in your your soft launch, reach out to them. You know, if you've got Discord, Just and it's like, hey, 
Yeah, give. Well, I mean, if if you've got them on Discord, like, hey, we we know this person has the same user i the same call sign as their their in game yeah. thing, and we know, hey, this player has spent, you know, three thousand dollars in our in our soft launch. Send them a message for goodness sake. Contact this player if it. it yeah. And just ask them like, Hey, what, what do you like? What don't you like? What, what, what have you spent on? Well, I mean, you know what you spent on because you got the analytics, but I mean, getting their opinion of like, what was the best thing that you bought? What's the thing that you value the most? What's, what's your, your prized possession in our game? I mean, that's so cool. Getting that kind of data from a player. Like what is the thing that you own in our game that you are most proud of that you want to show off to the world? Uh, Cause that can really, change like what what you find out like okay this is what the players are really after like oh they don't really care about you know this this skin but they're super impressed with this you know this title okay why are they so impressed with this title was it like super exclusive to get was it super hard or is it just because it sounds cool because i mean sometimes it's like oh yeah i i want uh, the immortal as a title just because it sounds cool might not be hard to get. So yeah, like getting getting that feedback from your players is so incredibly valuable, especially the the spending players. Um, now there are, of course, depending on where you are, certain legality issues with reaching out to players based on um, you know data that you've uh, acquired from within the game. You know, sometimes it has to be uh, anonymous. Um, so with legal department before doing anything like this but um yeah i mean if if you can if you're allowed to to talk to talk to your players um sometimes even if you can you know like uh one of our one of our developers that i worked with um, a while ago he was friends with um some people who were in a whale guild in a different game it wasn't one of ours but um these are people who would drop you know couple thousand bucks a month into this title. And um, we actually contacted these whales um, and we we paid to have them come in. We did a big survey. We we talked to them. We we sat down with all the designers, chatted with them for an entire afternoon. Um, They weren't even whales in our game. They're whales in a different game. But just getting the insights of like, why do they spend a thousand bucks? Why do they change games? Why do they go, okay, this game is no longer worth our time, worth our money. Let's all, because they, they leave en masse. Like all of them would go to different games as mm. a group of friends. Mm. So knowing how to attract that group of friends can allow you to bring in many whales at one time um, and also retain them. Like you don't want these people to get annoyed with your game and leave for somebody else's because when one goes, they all go. Mm. So yeah, if you can if you can reach out to players with these kinds of profiles, absolutely, it's an invaluable information as a game designer. It's you know, you know VIP management, however yeah. it's called, is it goes way beyond just having priority queuing on tickets when you send a mail. It's not that. It has nothing to do with that. Had a good friend who was a VIP manager, and this guy was on Discord all day giving us amazing information about the the, the, the biggest in the more engaged guys, because he was talking to them directly, just asking the good questions. And um, 
something I think to I fully agree on you, I found a lot of whales in my career. I think it's always very valuable information. But something I think you, we can also consider is talking with influencers, talking with the guys who have a community already that can give you valuable feedback and honest because the guys when they receive comments on their youtube channel or on twitch or whatever the the, the, the players are like spending time uh, you know writing those and just explaining how they feel so i think influencers are actually and you know very valuable as players first this most of the time has payer also because they do tend because that's their job so yeah. they tend to drop to drop some money in the game so ask those guys It's just cost nothing. Yeah. And most of the time they are very cool, very honest, and just give you the honest feedback that you need. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I mean, like the the influencers as well, they know what like they have access to data which we don't. Yeah. Like they they know, like, okay, when I make a video about um, you know, like this this weapon, yeah. how how to make an awesome build for this weapon. You know, I get a hundred thousand views. When I make a, a build for this other weapon, I get three million views. Okay, yeah. well, as as a Way developer, yeah. you, you want to know what weapons are your players going back to and viewing viewing builds for. Yeah. You know, you want to know what players are you know going back you know a couple of months ago to look up videos on. Yeah. Because the the great things about like YouTube and, and and you know these other platforms is that they're they're archived. So these influencers they can see okay this particular video is constantly getting a few hundred hits a week, every week for the last couple of you know for the last you know year two years however long your 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 title has been out, you know that that's awesome information to have as a developer because that tells you that there's persistent interest in this topic how can we how can we leverage this interest how can we make this more interesting to players going forward because there's always this constant ticking interest going on whereas if you see like okay it's a it's a one and done you know video then yeah okay that you know it, it's it's got a spike but how do we how do we give that the persistent interest that that that, that goes on into the future so this Some, actually yeah Oh, oh, I was going to say this actually ties into uh, kind of a question that I have been mulling over for a long time, um, which is sort of on the idea of like, okay, I found something that's valuable, you know, should I tweak my economy? Uh, but could that break the economy? And so I guess the core of the question is, you know, what is a broken game economy? Like, what does that mean for a game? And if that is the case, can I fix a broken economy without creating backlash and losing all my players? I think uh, or, uh, my experience with that, I've broken a couple of economies. Uh, <laughs> nice. Um, so one thing is, uh, I think, um, like similar to what was mentioned before, uh, before releasing a new set, uh, stuff on the uh, a new thing on the economy, Uh, because of course, if the economy is not yet live, or the game is early soft launch, or or an MVP stage, etc., you can do more dramatic change. You can detect and do more dramatic changes on the economy, and whatever, nobody will care because most of the population of the game will come up later. Now, the big problem is if you have the game going, there is a big population already, and and you break it. That 
is difficult because you cannot massive ch you cannot do massive changes in many games. Uh, most of the population of the game has al already entered in the game in the past, uh, so the you, you cannot recover. You cannot easily come back from a massive loss of the AU. Um, I think, uh, or at least in my experience, uh, if you pitch to certain members of the community, um, the or even the to the economy. Uh, sorry, to the community abroad, uh, the features that you want to introduce, the kind of economy model that, that you want to generate, etc., that goes, that at least can detect you a lot of the a lot of the exploits. Of course, the community as a whole will never tell you, oh, you're being too rewarding. But uh, <laughs> whales, whales, and 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 uh, expert players, especially if they have. Uh, an established relationship of confidence with you, they'll probably tell you like, okay, this is way out of, it seems too rewarding, or this yeah. seems not enough rewarding, or I could anticipate players saying that this is super greedy or or this is super uh, pushy for, for uh, this is, you know, pay to win and, and stuff like that. So one key advice, at least for me, is try to pitch uh, whatever you want to do to some small group of expert players uh, and they will provide you really really good feedback now the other thing is okay if what if even if you did that you broke the economy i think that um uh you have several ways to to do it i uh, to fix a, a problem um for me th there are some some stuff that you can kind of go back, let's say like you have a perfect or really good going uh, gold economy and you release this new feature uh, and it's super rewarding, etc. Probably you can tweak the rewards over time in order to, you know, progressively make them go down. Uh, maybe you can mix that with other rewards going up. So in order to kind of disguise the fact that you are uh, the, uh, the evaluating the the um, the feature, um, and then there are some other situations where the economy is so broken that sometimes you don't need to fix it. What you need is to move away from it. And I've seen, for example, in Monster Legends, it does happen. Uh, the gold economy is super. The inflation is insane. And uh, instead of fixing gold in the game, because that would have been would have pissed off a lot of people would have broken the foundations of how they had to structure their own realms and their own you know cities and everything and the type of creatures they were farming and stuff like that instead of doing that what we did is we moved we, we, we kind of keep that as an area of the game that is not particularly monetized and instead we move the monetization effort to newer and healthier and healthier currencies so basically yeah. we make made people pay for new currencies that we could keep under control instead of trying to fix something that was basically unfixable without killing the game mm. yeah, I mean, it's important actually to... dropping the secret sauce recipe here <laughs> for protomentalized things yeah <laughs> yeah caitlin yeah, well, I was just gonna say like the um the the the, the, the big question is broken how? Because there, there, there are countless ways to break an economy, and there are just as many ways to to to, to salvage it once you've broken it. 
Um, like you're mentioning about um, moving, you know, players moving away from certain types of uh, currencies that have become uh, too inflated, too devalued to be useful. And one of the, the classic examples is in uh, Diablo 2. You know, the, they, yeah, sure, they had gold. Nobody traded gold because it was, <laughs> it was worthless. Nobody cared about gold. Everyone was playing, um, you know, either using runes or uh, Stone of Jordans because they were far more um, stable uh, concepts of wealth. So a, a Stone of Jordan wouldn't devalue over time quite as much as gold would. So the players themselves abandoned a worthless currency and basically created their own. Um, as I recall, uh, I think it was... EverQuest 2 uh, used uh, horse dung as a, as a <laughs> Ultima Online. <laughs> that was it. It's Ultima Online used horse dung as a as a currency type because it only spawned for a very short period of time, as I recall, and um, it was super difficult to get. It basically had it it had a you know limited supply, and it worked well as a medium of exchange. So sometimes the, as you're saying, like sometimes the best way to, to solve a broken economy is to just give them one that works. <laughs> you know, just stop trying. You, there's only so much you can do to try and fix an economy that's already, uh, that's already broken itself. Sometimes the right answer is just move on and, and give, give them a new currency type that, that is, uh, that it, that is controlled, that is better fixed, and use that and let the leave the um, the relatively broken uh, currency type as just a um, you know it, it as just its own thing off to the side. Like uh, example in um, Warframe, they have uh, credits, which is their soft currency. Yep. No one trades in credits because they're they're worthless like they're you worthless. can get yeah but they don't uh they, they don't use credits as a strong reward type anymore they don't make you farm credits uh they've actually added in uh nodes that allows you to farm huge amounts of credits super quick and super easy and they've just abandoned that as a sink so they've just accepted okay players have effectively infinite credits we will control them in other means. So they'll use things like Endo. They'll use things like, um, so I'm just naming off a bunch of resources that if you haven't played the game, platinum, you probably don't platinum. understand. <laughs> yeah, they have Platinum, which is a hard currency. They have, um, you know, like when, when you upgrade your mods, you use Endo and Credits. Well, since Credits are effectively infinite, realistically, you're just using Endo. Um, when you're building weapons and you're building um, you're building frames, like it's the the resources that go into it that are the hard to get stuff, not the the credits. So credits have just become a non-issue in the game because the 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 currency scaled out from scaled out from underneath of them. So yeah, honestly, sometimes the easy the, the easiest way to fix a broken economy is to just leave the broken economy and make a fixed economy to work on the side. So everything has been said. Warframe is a fun example. They have their own in you know inside markets. I haven't touched the game since for a long time, but you know 
Yeah, through that oh. people tend the perceived value of things is defined by the players themselves, and they just trade stuff for hard currency in a sort of black market. It's kind of and crazy. Well, it's not even a black market. It's just a supporting yeah, market. Yeah, not black market. It's just internal market of things mm. that's just you know on this piece of uh, of the frame, and you can buy it for another piece, so you could for Endo or for it's pretty pretty great. So but, something I, I think uh, something we haven't discussed is seasonal reset. Uh, sometimes also what you, you if your games allow it and that's also a good learning that it's, it's always good to try everything as an event first because it can be <laughs> stops and resetted if needed but you know if you if, if you need to fix this is i think this is a good way to fix an economy that just introduces seasonality and just say season's over man so stuff is new, new currency, new stuff. Yeah, look at this, all the good yep. stuff we have. And, you know, use this as an excuse to just change the value of things. Because, oh, yeah. You know, yeah, that's that's that could also be a solution. Uh, yeah. It's well, harder to... Yeah. I, th I think that's a, that's, a, that's a good practice. But again, as you mentioned, it, it, it is similar to something you mentioned, which, which is compartmentalization of the economy, yeah. of the economy mm. which I think it's it's... It's great and and it really makes that if something broken, at least it won't contaminate anything else yeah. and and you can it's properly isolated, etc. The the thing and I feel it's the same thing with uh, um, you know seasonality. It has to do a lot. You you need to take in account a lot the audience because, for example, if you're doing casual games, compartmentalization is something that is desirable, sure, but for yeah. from the developer side, but it can make the game too complex. Uh, to be easily manageable by yeah. by the by a casual audience, uh, I can think on, for example, homescapes and and uh, gardenscapes and so on, which features only one currency. Uh, which mm -hmm. uh, again, it kind of seems like oh, bad practice, right? But I think I feel it kind of works uh, because, like a casual audience, like if if they had like seven different types of of uh, currencies, it would probably be way too hard for them to manage. It would require for for the players. I mean, it would require the players to you know start strategizing which kind of areas of the game do they play in order to work gather one currency or the other. And instead, for them, it works much better to have only as a single currency and then treat every single booster as if it was a currency of sorts. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think with seasonality happens the same thing. For example, uh, I've worked in uh, several games that were oriented to collector players. Um, and for example, to those players, like losing their content because of seasonality, even if it makes sense, even if that content uh, is used for, com for competition, it's really, um, really punishing. I think that, for example, Magic the Gathering with probably has, or at least that's what I think, the best seasonal rotation system ever, uh, has one cool thing, which is the fact that once the card rotates out, it still keeps their collection value because you can you still keep the, the, the actual card and you can even, uh, actually becomes more valuable as a it collection be, yeah. item because yeah. when when it rotates out, no more of them will be uh, will be factored at least in theory. Uh, <laughs> so it will raise its value and and so on, become more scarce. Uh, but in 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 a lot of games that are oriented to collection, like for for players losing their collection and and so on, it can be also very punishing. So I 
I do agree. Uh, like that's the kind of thing that makes a lot of sense on, on paper, but it really depends on the audience to know. Or I think it's it's very relevant to know if if the audience is going to take it or not, and not every single audience is going to accept it uh, in a similar way. Fully agree. The other Fully agree important thing to to mention, like we're talking a lot about compartmentality, is um, making sure you don't end up with islands of content. Uh, you know, where the player goes and does X activity, which makes them better at X activity, but has no interaction with anything else in the rest of the game. I mean, we, we've mentioned Warframe before, which is a game that has a, a bit of a reputation for having the, these islands of content within, within the game. I mean, you've got uh, their, their Railjack game mode where you get rewards for Railjack which only helps you do more railjack. <laughs> I mean, if, if <laughs> you don't find somehow, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an extremely closed loop. So it doesn't, uh, there, there's no encourage, like as a, as a, as a main game player, I don't feel any desire to go play railjack because it doesn't help me with the game modes that I enjoy. Whereas yeah, if I could it, get some, some really awesome mods or some really cool weapons from railjack, that would help me in the rest of the game, I might be wanting to go and explore this, this other game mode. So making sure that you've got a sufficient amount of um, cross-pollination, if you will, between different game modes that you know draws players in, you know, gives them rewards for something else. Uh, I actually wrote a, a blog piece um, about a month ago on um, uh, my blog. It's a uh, treasuresavvy.wordpress.com, I think. Um, and yeah, I actually covered on, you know, games that have both good, you know, too, too much island of content, too little island of content, and a, a really nice sweet spot, which I think was um, Guild Wars 2. They, they have uh, a gearing system which really rewards you for doing different types of content, but doesn't um, force you into doing different types of content that you might not otherwise enjoy. So yeah, it's it's a really important thing to sort of say like how how compartmentalized do we want things to be? I think one one methodology and it's an approach that I've taken several times on live games uh, to keep compartmentalization, to have compartmentalization but keep complexity at bay and and yeah. do not create this type of thing where you create this Frankenstein monster and if you enter as a new player you see like a thousand features and and so on is uh link it to seasonal like what i've done a lot of times is link it to seasonality so i create this new feature and that feature is going to exist for only a period of time not necessarily a season it can be like one year or two but Basically, uh, that island of content, that that area of of of, um, uh, of content makes the player in, go through a, a specific activity, etc. And once that activity has been kind of wasted out, both in terms of content and in terms of innovation for the player, like it's not new and fun anymore. Uh, we kind of integrate it into the uh, general economy, and uh, we create a new. Uh, a new section. So I think this is a way how you can keep the economy kind of evolving and uh, essentially having sections of the economy that work like a live ops. Um, and I, I think one big mistake is 
just adding more and more features and kind of complexifying the economy and making it grow without uh, taking into account or without necessarily revamping the previous areas of, of the economy. And eventually you end up with uh, systems that are so complex that have difficulties on engaging new players just because you enter yeah. there and there are so many things which made sense if you were living the game experience since day one because then they were added progressively to your experience yeah. and now entering um <laughs> That's a mess. when 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 yeah. the game has been live four years from from the start it's basically insane insane i see that in for example a lot of mmos and i think one of the oh yeah Warframe is the with, best example ever. <laughs> one of the cool things with, for example, World of Warcraft, and um, they actually touched that a lot with the latest expansion, yeah. uh, with their last expansion, was that they they, they keep on revamping the uh, experience for the early players and kind of yeah. streamlining it a lot. Um, I recently played uh, uh, World of Warcraft Classic, and just examining like the differences between the what, what because <laughs> what i was thinking was okay uh classic is gonna be awesome and like the <laughs> modern world, world of warcraft uh, that they're moving <laughs> you, away you they, those heretics <laughs> and actually what I, what I discovered was that uh the modern or the contemporary wow to me it's really more fun uh yeah, like, the, the game is really faster you can i can comp uh, I can I can have it and have a life at the same time, which is not something that yes. I can have with a WoW Classic. And um, <laughs> for me, WoW Classic was super cool to to make me come back to World of Warcraft. But um, I, I I really appreciate. I think it was very smart uh, by Blizzard to keep on improving the the experience for from the point of view of the started player. And yeah. uh, it's a strong lesson in my opinion for. Uh, people dealing with with game economies, like if you make the, the economy more 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 and more complex, that can make sense for players that have been in the game for a long time time, and they are enjoying these new features. But it can make the economy less effective for players that are starting right now. Yeah, especially I, if I you've got a, yeah, if you've got a live project that has been live for a while, you need to frequently come back and just say, okay, what what actually is the new player experience here? Yeah. How are new players introduced to these various systems? Because, yeah, if you're if you're layering system on top of system on top of system on top of system, then yeah, when that new player comes in and they see, you know, a, a, a tutorial with 87 steps, they're gonna go <laughs> no, and they're gonna churn immediately. Especially when the gonna... tutorial ends and the tutorial of the new feature which you introduced three years yeah, after <laughs> pumps up and you can yeah. chain tutorials for <laughs> or even that's worse so you funny. don't have a tutorial you don't, like, yeah. you, you, you've got the original tutorial and then they're thrown into this this game that's got the, you know, the game is not about the, the about the or, uh, has nothing to do with what nothing to do uh, what's at the beginning yeah the, yeah or, be... or it's just like okay well like you've taught me how to do three things and now i'm being presented with 10 things what do I do with the other seven? How am I supposed to learn about these things? Yeah. So Good. yeah, like going back and reevaluating your your day your day zero player experience and just like okay, how do we teach them about the systems that they actually need to know? And yeah, I mean sometimes you might want to lock off new content to higher levels. Like okay, you you want to be able to do this this new game mode? Well, get to level five. 
show, show yeah. us you understand the basics, get to level five, then we introduced this new game mode, which was an event three years ago. Mm-hmm. And yeah, control the pacing, because that, yeah. that's a, a big way that you can throw out you know, so many of your, your day zero players is just by having bad pacing, um, introducing features at a wrong time, introducing, um, you know, just, just confusing, the, the, confusing the player is one of the fastest way to get them to leave your game. Just, just to add on, on everything, just to recap, ne- never underestimate the value of using live ops to test economy in general. Ooh, yeah. Just throw events all the time with stuff in it. Reduced version of gadgets, reduced version or simplified version of something else that you want to test. Just do do your MVP with events all the time. To just this is the man because if if it backfires at you. Just toggle it off. That's it. Yeah. It's gone. It was an event. It was stated yeah, I mean, this way. I, I, ideally, you should design your game to make those kinds of events as easy as possible to do. Like if you're working on a, if you're working on a, you know, uh, what is it? Pa- Path of Exile. Perfect example of a game that was designed from the ground up with these live ops systems yep. as uh, as a concept. So their entire game loop is like, okay, a new event comes out, you start again at level one, and you yep. power through to, to, to experience this, this game mode. And then when the event is over, that character goes back to standard league, and most players don't play standard league. Yep. They just start a new character with the new event to try the new cool thing. And when uh when path of exile when when grinding gear games find something that's really cool that that really resonates with players they'll actually take that game that 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 event feature and roll it into the base game so it is now a permanent feature so they they use their events their 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 seasons to basically as you said run a test on how the players react to this particular feature some of them are just super popular and the players love them to death and other ones are just like uh, no no we yeah, do not like this disappear forever <laughs> and yeah Actually, they're just like okay we, we've learned our lesson we're not going to do this one again and they kill that feature and they go and to the that, next season an interesting usage on, on that direction of live ops in re- in relationship with the game economies for example yeah. on um adventure communist or idle minor Idol tycoon. Games. i think they they th- those games in general all this type of ty- idle tycoons the games the, the the points where the games are more fun is at, at the beginning where you're establishing the the loop etc but then once you are one year into the game the game is really repetitive and and really doesn't add that much the, the the game economy itself because everything is so big and yeah now it's about trillions instead of billions but essentially you're you're not doing anything new and how a very smart way how they how the the events really reset the economy in a way is that on the events you basically are replaying the game for the game from the from the beginning but is just gonna last for one week, for example, or two days or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but this makes you relieve the moments that were the most mm-hmm. fun in, in the game. And in, in Adventure Communist in particular, it's it's really awesome. It's, it kind of feels it's, it's just re- a reset of the game that you play for two days. And what happens is that um, 
since the most fun moments happen just at the beginning of, of the game, that's when you see everything explode, you unlock the different materials and stuff like that, that kind of keeps the game always fresh. Um, and and I, f I felt that was a super smart way to use um, live ops to kind of affect the economy or at least to keep the economy soft resetting um, yeah. on on an area on the on the on its best area, because for example, completely resetting the the uh, progression. They do it, but but um, in, in some points. But but uh, I felt like for that type of player would be really punishing, no? Yeah. Like making them work to create their own uh, mine, etc. And then like you lose it. Uh, it mm. It's a little bit. It's a little bit punishing, but with the events, it's it's a much uh, softer and, and much more acceptable way. That's, that's why yeah. there's no reset without leaving the players with something. They should yeah. always yeah. have something to show for it. Yeah. You know, a trophy, yeah, uh, skins and weapons, charms and stuff. That you have stuff because you were there. You yeah. know, mm -hmm. you were there, and this is extremely important. So it's not it's a tool to reset the economy, but never forget about the leaving the players with something if not it's so just I think that's something bad. that can be really learned from uh roguelike games because those are very much games that's like okay you you come in you play for a bit you die but every time you you play you get you know you start a little bit further ahead than you did last time yeah um so it's like okay yeah i i, I made the, the level 13 in the dungeon but i unlocked uh um you know five percent more hp so now maybe I'll make it to level 14 or maybe I'll get really unlucky and I'll only make it to level five because, you know, the, the, the random randomness just, just screwed me over. But understanding that, you know, it's like every time I do it, I always get a little bit further mm -hmm. and that can definitely apply to, to seasonality as well. Like, okay, it's the, the Christmas event. Well, maybe this Christmas, um, you know, it's, it's, I've got some stuff going on. I'm visiting a whole bunch of family. I don't have time to play. You know, I might only be able to get halfway to the, the Santa Claus hero. But in, you know, the next year when that Christmas event rolls around again, you know, maybe that, that, that halfway to Santa Claus hero can get me something to, mm -hmm. to start off with the next event. Like, oh, I start off a quarter of the way to the Santa Claus hero, so I don't have as far to go. I didn't quite get reset to zero, um, or the the price of the Santa Claus hero has been reduced. So now instead of it needing a hundred a hundred Santa hats, I only need you know sixty six Santa hats. So now I'm really closer to getting that Santa hero. But now there's a a reindeer hero at a hundred Santa hats, and now I've got okay. Now I've got another goal to go to. Uh, one of the important things with, with monetization, one of the great things with being a digital existence is that we can, we, we don't have, uh, overhead costs. Like once you, once you've made the, the code and the, the artwork for a, uh, for a hero, it costs you just as much to make one of that hero as it costs you to make a hundred million of that hero. So there, there's no actual production uh, duplication costs once once the the thing has been produced so we can really monetize the entire uh price demand curve so you can start off with a a premium item being you know if it's in a for example a gotcha pack it might be worth 
you know, 100 USD, 100 US dollars for a player to, on average, to earn this item through the random gacha. Well, then you can put it into a, a better gacha later on, and maybe now it's only 50 USD. And then you can sell it in the shop directly for, you know, $20. Then you can have an event where the player needs to spend like five, like, $10 for it. And then you can put it in the shop again for $5 and you can keep hitting every point down that, down that curve. And as long as there's a sufficient amount of time in between them so that the players who got it at $100 feel like, okay, I got, you know, an extra year of use out of this item that the, the person who's paying $10 for it now, you know, they're just starting. Mine's already max level. I've been using it for a while. I've gotten my, my value out of it. So if you put enough time in between, you can monetize that entire <laughs> price demand curve and get far more out of an item than if you just said, okay, it's going in at a hundred bucks and that's it, we're done. You wanna be able to hit those players. It's like, okay, I want this hero, but I'm not spending a hundred bucks for it. I'm willing to spend 20 bucks for it. Well, if the price continuously comes down, eventually it will get to the point where, you know, that $20 player is like, okay, now it's worth my time. So you can monetize them then later on. So being able to to change the price of things again through through usually through live events through through some sort of special offer can allow you to monetize uh, the entire price demand curve and really optimize the amount of money you can get out of the same amount of work uh, producing that that hero that are, that asset in the first place. So. I Sorry. Well, I was actually going to say um, that kind of reminds me of, of one last topic that I did want to cover today, which is um, specifically <laughs> in, in social casino games, um, you know, as you unlock, let's say, like new casinos or, or lotto boxes or whatnot, usually the cost to play each of those kind of goes up, um, you know, and, and what is the approach that you guys think should be taken towards scaling the currency that you can buy in the shop to kind of keep up on entry fees and things like that. Um, so, you know, kind of Caitlin, as you were talking about how you have a sliding scale down from like a hundred down to maybe like a dollar for that sword, you know, is there a way to appropriately do that such that as players progress and things are more expensive in the game, the, you know, price of currency kind of keeps on par with that, or, you know, at least keeps up with that if you kind yeah. of follow what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, one of the, the titles I'm working on right now, we have a, um, you know, the the resources, when you first start off, it's like, okay, I might need like a couple thousand. But when you've been playing the game for, you know, six months, eight months, you know, you might need 20 million. So obviously if we sold a new player 20 million resources, it would break their experience. But conversely, if we sold, if we tried to sell a end game player stuff in 5,000, 5, 5, uh, you know, unit denominations, they'd be clicking buy for like 45 minutes just to be able to afford anything. So you need to be able to scale these things up. And one of the things that we're using is um, having the player unlock better bundles as they progress through the game. So if you want a, uh, you know, if you want the, um, you know, $5 bundle for, you know, 2 million resources, you can get that at level five. 
But then when you get to level eight, okay, now you've unlocked the 10 million bundle for $7. So it's twice as much stuff, but a little bit more expensive. So it's, you know, you can still buy the older bundle, but really you're going to want to buy the, the, the one that's got twice as much stuff that's a little bit more expensive. So the, the players will see a progression in the, the bundles and it's something that they've earned. It's not something that they've, they've bought. Like you have, to, you have to earn the right to be able to get this bundle. And it's important to put in that feeling of accomplishment for the player that this is, this is something that they've deserved. This is something that they've, they've worked for. And, and give them that ability to, uh, to get the bigger bundles, which have uh, appropriate amount of resources for the, uh, the content that they're doing at that point of the game progression. So just to jump, so I'm, I, keep, I kept thinking Coinmaster, Coinmaster, Coinmaster in my mind, because, <laughs> you know, Coinmaster just accumulates soft currency like crazy. You're just spending millions and millions and millions. And the shop... Uh, I, th I think the most important thing to, to keep in mind in this case is maybe you don't need to monetize the soft currency. Maybe you just need to keep the, increase the, the link with the hard currency or with the energy in this case in Coinmaster, you know. So you need this hard, this stable hard currency to be able just to make the link between with your inflating hard, the soft currency. So, so that would be one solution, I think. So to board game, coin master, all of those games that increase, maybe idle games. I'm not sure, Javier, you might just add on this. You, you, you might be an expert on idle games, <laughs> but uh, I think the shop scales, right? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I I'm not sure. Check it out. Yeah. Um, what I can tell you is that in uh, I'm I'm not entirely sure that the main monetization area on for example in Adventure Communist um, I don't think they sell you no um, they sell you the currencies themselves I think that what they what they sell you is actually the amount of time or uh, so the main soft currency is workers in Adventure Communist. Yeah. And they don't sell you 1 million workers. What they sell you is uh, the amount of workers that you would get in four hours. So they sell you four hours of workers. Ah, that's cool. That I way, really like yeah. that. That way, uh, they, they always match the um, progression on acquisition of workers that you have achieved. That's a very cool trick. On the topic of inflation of prices, I would like to enter uh, once you are done. Good. Yeah, I mean, I was done. I mean, the, the other thing I, want, I wanted to add was like, you can also, if the inflation is linked to higher spending, you can tie this into a VIP model so that your VIP yeah. gets access to the black store, the red store, the whatever you want store. And... Yeah. Um, and that also could be a solution. So if you just have, if it's if it's not inherently linked to the, just the game progression that inflates, but it's because people just want to spend more on a, just more energy, more stuff, you can link it to the VIP model, and just that's yeah. it. The VIPs get more get more stuff in the shop because they unlocked it. Go on, Javier. Yeah, on on, the, on this topic, just because uh, the specific example that Tom mentioned. Uh, seem to point out an escalation of the on real pricings on on the real on the real price of things. So at the beginning I'm paying one euro, then I'm paying five euro, then I'm paying ten euro. I don't think that's a very good practice. Uh, of course, every generates its own thing, and of course as the players are more engaged and 
or are more advanced in the game, they'll probably be more engaged, and then you can release to them higher prices, and and they pro probably because they are more engaged at the end of the game, they're they're probably uh, higher ranges of prices are going to be more valuable for the monetization, but. Uh, what happened? Like, if you have a dolphin that can only spend uh, ten bucks per month, and uh, then once you are three months in the game, what you are asking is not ten bucks, or t spending ten bucks basically provides you nothing. And in order to keep on being competitive or keep on uh, progressing at the same pace, instead, what you have to pay is fifty bucks. Uh, then you're you're basically killing. Uh, your population, you're setting up a, a natural selection, uh, and only the uh, bigger payers survive. And eventually, if that keeps up, there's going to be one point where not even 99 bucks is going to be uh, enough. And so, when it comes to pricing, I'm or what I would advise is try to keep the range of prices kind of relatively stable through the yeah. uh, course of the game and make yeah. that even in the late game a purchase of 10 bucks. Can still make sense um, be because you're following another strategy or something uh, in order not to kill or to move away those 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 players. Because even yeah. if, of course, you want to you know target a whale and obtain a whale for your audience, obtaining a dolphin is extremely valuable and yeah, it shouldn't it be uh, sacrificed. Now, on the topic of the of the uh, soft currency, my advice would be. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm concerned. I'm always concerned with uh, inflation, just because I've seen games. <laughs> I've created a lot of games with inflation of the some currency, and and sometimes trying to keep that um, comp uh, valuable at different ranges of of, of the game. It's it's super difficult. Uh, on Asphalt 8, I added the same or something very similar to what uh, Caitlin was mentioning. So basically what happened is when you progressed on the career, you would unlock um, bundles of soft currency that would multiply the amount of uh, of currency that you were getting on those packs. And the behavior was not as expected because what I okay. expected is that, okay, at the beginning they would pay because, I don't know, uh, 20 bucks was equivalent to 1,000 credits and that would allow you to to buy the cars, but then at the end game, uh, 10 bucks would give you one, uh, I don't know, uh, 200, uh, thousand, and that would allow you to buy the, um, to buy the cars at that stage. But what happened was that players were advising to each other not to spend on the, the, yeah. until they had progressed. Because what they yeah. were feeling is like, <laughs> oh, if you pay at the beginning of the game, you're wasting your money. Because yeah. uh, if you wait, you will get much more value for the same amount of money. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, on top of that, it was, it, and on top of that, it was harder to manage when it comes to, for example, uh, doing discounts and stuff like that. I had to take that in account, the fact that, okay, there were several prices and several different packs inside the game and so on. So, I, I felt it was a suboptimal solution for me, even if, for sure, in short games do make sense. Like, for example, in Clash Royale, the fact that you increase the output of the chests when you progress, yeah. I think that's great, uh, in order to keep packs competitive, um, or chests competitive, sorry. Uh, but in, in general, what I would say is like, maybe I, I do prefer to keep inflation under control. And if I, it cannot be kept under control because of 
course, we want to provide bigger rewards in order to fuel a sense of progression and so on. Maybe sell stuff that is not necessarily the currency itself, but rather something that doesn't change over time. For example, in um, in uh, Clash of Clans, instead of selling gold, sell a refill of the of the mm. gold container and and stuff like that, uh, which will allow you to keep a price that is stable over the course of the game, even if the that price is still uh, valuable, uh, keeping up with the with the progression and the escalation of the rewards. Uh, the example on Adventure Communists for me works really great it's, as well. It would be great. super hard for them to manage. Uh, how many workers would be appropriate for a certain amount of money because that increases really a lot through the progression of, of the game. And of course, if the player would have the impression that, okay, if I wait, I'm going to get more workers for the amount of my money, I would I would wait. Uh, and the fact that they are selling um, hours instead for, for a single price makes it that, okay, no matter when you buy it, it's always going to pro provide you um, a similar a similar value. Uh, so for me, again, trying to move the gate to the areas that do not suffer inflation, even if uh, the ultimate thing that you're selling is as an element that that suffers a big inflation would be the way to go. Of course, yeah, it good. depends a lot on the genre and and it's hardly you know ex extrapolable to yeah, any yeah. single genre out there. This trick is yeah. so cool. So yeah, the other nice thing about um, tying it to to time as well is that it allows you as a designer to compare your valuation versus other uh, titles within the similar genre. So, like if it costs, um, you know, five hundred dollars and you know six months uh, of game time to reach max level in your title, and it costs. $20,000 and six months of game time to reach max level in a competitor's title, they're probably monetizing in ways that you're not. So, you know, it allows you to look at, um, you know, because, I mean, what's 100 units of food in game A compared to 100 units in wood in game B? You can't compare them. They're, they're It's apples and oranges. But one hour of gathering time in game A is pretty comparable to one hour of gathering time in, in game B because you've got that uh, that commonality of one hour of real world. So looking at your monetization from a, uh, you know, how, how much, you know, what is the, the dollars per hour that I'm saving? Or, or, or what's, the, what's the dollar per hour cost of this content in my game versus the dollar per hour cost of this content in my competitor's game. And, you know, are we within, you know, are we similar? Are we completely, you know, are, are we in order of magnitude more expensive? Because that may make players feel that, you know, our game isn't, uh, is too expensive. Where are they doing the monetization in, in the other titles? Are they doing it, you know, gathering the resources to be able to press the button? Or are they monetizing mostly on the, you know, skipping the button after you've already pressed it? You know, how, how, are, they, how are they monetizing in, in their, their time? So it, it's, it's, it's a good universal comparison by, by tying it to time. So, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, I do agree. That that's a very interesting uh, thing. The only problem that I would that I would say is that this the distribution of resources per hour, unless the fluctuation is really big, uh, and again, it's it's a super cool thing as a yeah. as a developer to check out. But unless the distribution is really uh, the difference is really big, it will probably not generate a even spotable uh, difference for the players. And honestly, I've never seen a player saying. On this game, I get you know 20% more per hour. Probably, I've seen them say, "Oh, this game is way more expensive or way less rewarding." Yeah. But nevertheless, I wanted to point out an example that I think it kind of links with the, uh, which is related to that, uh, which is linked to the implications of the game economy design, uh, which is, for example, uh, Asphalt 8 and Real Racing compared to uh, CSR and ri Rival. Ra racing, rival racing, um, which is um, <laughs> in both both are car games, and of course in car games the most fun stuff is to get new cars. The fun thing is when you get your Porsche or your Ferrari mm -hmm. and so on. And in Real Racing Three and Asphalt Eight and Asphalt Nine, getting a Ferrari is pretty expensive, uh, and it, it, it it's really premium. It requires a lot of work, but in comparison, getting it on CSR or and in uh, uh, racing rivals, uh, especially, it's way cheaper. It, but it's like like a very significant. It's in in racing rivals. I remember it was like one third of the price of uh, of uh, like any given car. It was one third of the price of uh, the same car in Real Racing Three and Asphalt Eight and Asphalt Nine. And the main reason was because on first on CSR. The depth of upgrade spending in the cars was so big they, that there were so many upgrades and and so many um, like you had to like getting the car was not was just the start of the of the of the journey in in CSR and then you have to put up so much money that it really was it was worth for them to give it cheaper and on racing rivals it was awesome because um, even taking in account the that yes they had. Uh, significant or great spending and so on. In racing rivals, you could lose the game, the cars by betting them, and because of that, they they made the premium, the most premium element of the genre, a consumable. And because because of that, uh, I mean, cool. sure, when you That's lose awesome. the game, unless it was a collector's a, a collector's car, which you shouldn't bet, uh, you could <laughs> you could pay a certain amount, which was lower than the acquisition price, in order to get it back. But whatever the case, that meant whatever the yeah they they held your cash, car hostage. But whatever whatever the case, this means this mean that that they could give the cars more freely and in a much cheaper way, yeah. and therefore be perceived as way cheaper, because that that premium element that was a super permanent element uh, had incorporated a lot of consumable elements, which made that it, it generated revenue because people were going to bet it and lose it sometimes and pay to keep it or to get it that's, back. That's uh, clever. That's that super, super so clever. I, I felt that's that was super, super, super smart when it came to how you can generate an, a, a game economy and affect stuff related to prices, etc. How can that have implications on the value that players perceive on the game? That is that is brilliant. I'm gonna remember That's that. That's brilliant, yeah. yeah. I, I, I if he's taking nothing away, forward. take this away today. I'm so I'm, <laughs> I'm so sad that I haven't tried this on Hungry Dragon. That, that would have been yeah. perfect. 
Um, Have I'm, you played I'm, Hungry Dragon? <laughs> no, I haven't. But uh, yeah, there's there's a few titles that I've worked on in the past where I'm just like, oh man, that would have yeah, been yeah. so great in cool. in this game. But uh, yeah, I'm certain something like that that allowing players to yeah. uh, to wager content that they've won. Yeah, and I, I, can honestly, really... I, I, in in some games uh, because I've tried to do that in several games, <laughs> and in some games. People does not accept it that well, and yeah. probably yeah, if you're working in a casual game oriented to kids, you should not do it. No. Uh, you should not integrate <laughs> gambling. But even in other games that I've done for for more adult audiences, it really depends. I think that in yeah. in in cars, it's a genius idea because yeah. uh, this theme. thing about betting your car is something that appears on Fast and the Furious movies, and yeah. it's yeah. part of the keys, you know. kind of the uh, lingo of the or, or the, the inner world of of uh, actual car racers so it's it's really close to the thematic same thing with uh, uh, we were talking about seasonalities and one major game that has seasonalities in free to play is is uh, madden and yeah. uh, also they are also they're kind of introducing this type of seasonality where you need to build your team again in every single sports game um, in yeah. top 11 for example your uh, um, your players get older and you need, and they lose value, and you need to constantly be hiring <laughs> new players, and so on. And I feel that's genius because it, it fits so well with the thematic of, of the game that it kind of feels natural. It feels natural in a game, in a football manager that your players get old because that's what happens on reality. And yeah. and the same thing with seasonality of of in Madden, for example, new season. Okay, all the now the 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 different teams have to wage on the different players and so on. And um, that thematic uh, suitability for me, it's awesome. Yeah, it's kind, nice. of, kind of like a different uh, a different take on power creep, basically. It is. So yeah. Instead of so instead of introducing new units, new cards, new whatever your your thing is, um, you you slowly over time sort of reduce the power of the existing ones. In in top eleven. Top eleven is genius. Probably with <laughs> it should it should have its own its own um, uh, podcast. And Tom, you should definitively call somebody from Nordeus because the the design of top eleven is is genius on on how they manage uh, stat nerfing and every time you go from one league to another, the units of the ne of the newer league are higher stats than the older one, and that generates an internal economy of players that sell. Your nice. the, the the players that allow you, that were really good and allow you to move from one league to another, then you sell them cheap to the players that are on the lower league, so they give you resources so you can buy uh, so the cool. players of your current league. It's genius. Top eleven is, is genius. Smart. <laughs> I, I, have to, I have, might have to pick that up. Have to pick yeah. that up. Love it. Cool. Well, you know, guys, I think we're about at our time here. Um, this has been. Fantastic. I, oh, I feel like I've awesome. yeah. learned a lot. I had a, a lot of fun uh, just chatting about game economies and, and thinking about things. <laughs> I took a lot of, a lot of great notes and, and, and just absorbed information. So I, I do want to thank all of you for uh, joining me tonight. Um, oh, I had a wonderful time. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. Thanks. Thank Tom. you so much. Uh, I hope everyone that was listening, uh, got some great insights. Um, uh, I'll post links to both of your blogs. Um, Hadrian, oh, I don't know if you, you have a blog. 
No, just go LinkedIn. LinkedIn. (laughs) I should, right? I know when I find the time. We're going to post uh, a LinkedIn message. And if we can like get it preformed so that you can like ask him to write a blog, maybe we'll we'll get him to do that. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, well, thank you again, guys. Uh,